Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. Suzanne Laurie Parks was the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for playwriting for Top Dog Underdog in 2001. She won Obie Awards for Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom, which was produced in 1989, and for Venus in 1998. I had a chance to speak with Suzanne Laurie Parks when she was on tour for her only novel, Getting Mother's Body, on May 20, 2003. Since that time, she has continued to work in theater, adapting the book of Porgy and Bess for a 2012 Broadway production, writing Father Comes Home from the Wars, parts 1, 2, and 3 in 2014, and she won an Obie Award in 2019 for her play White Noise. Those last two plays have recently been seen in San Francisco productions. She also wrote the screenplay for the 2019 film Native Son. Getting Mother's Body took you six years to write. And uh, came out of, uh, insofar as I know, you read As I Lay Dying and decided Mm -hmm. to write a novel Mm -hmm. in multiple viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that the similarity between this and a very long play is really clear. Yeah, the intersection was really lovely. I had been writing plays for several years, and all of my plays up until that point had had dead characters in them. So I was very interested in the dead, and even my first play, The Sinner's Place, which I wrote in 1982, had a resurrection. You know, they they dug up the body of of somebody. And so when I read Faulkner, which was after I'd been writing these plays with dead characters in them, I read him and I felt like I'd found a literary pal. Like, oh my God, he's into dead people too. And it was the natural way for me to write a novel, having written plays for so long at that point. When I was reading it, once it occurred to me about halfway through the book that this could be a play. I kept thinking oh. of things like Our Town oh, right, and right, other right, things like right. that where people step forward right, and right. continue a story. Right. There's also a Rashomon element to it as well. Right, right. It could be a play, just as I think Top Dog Underdog could be a movie or could be a novel or the America play could be a novel or Venus could be a movie. You know, it could be, but... To me, it never was a play in my mind. It was always a, a novel and because the, I think for a writer, each work finds its best shape or its best form, the best way to tell the story. And the best way to tell the story, really the only way to tell the story initially anyway, was through the, the novel. The story takes place in 1963, Texas. Uh, which happens to be uh, the year you were born, yes. and you grew up in uh, in Texas as yeah, well. Yeah. And you've said elsewhere that you plan to set other pieces in Texas. What What is your affinity for Texas? I, I love uh, the landscape. Um, my father was a, a career army officer, and we moved all, 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 all over the place, um, different place every year. We lived in Texas and North Carolina and Germany and Maryland and Vermont and California. But when he was in Vietnam, we, my mother, my sister and brother, 
and I lived in West Texas where my mother is from. And I absolutely love the landscape of West Texas. It's arid. It's it's very bare and spare. And the people are fantastic. Uh, And I have a great love for the people and a great respect for the people. So when I wanted to write a novel, it was very much also, you know, I wanted to write about this beautiful landscape. And out of the landscape came the people, and out of the people came the story. Why did you choose 1963? It's sort of just before the civil rights movement gets underway. Right. It's, um... Well, it's, 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 yeah, just before it is cranked up to the next level, in a way. Um, it's 1963 in June, July of 1963. Um, so it's before the March on Washington, which was in August, before the Birmingham bombings, and, of course, before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So it's at, it's at a time in America where we were different. We had not experienced those things. It seems that by doing that, setting mm-hmm. it there, there's certain um, lacks of awareness, mm-hmm. self-awareness mm-hmm. that might have come even as right. soon as six months later. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They are aware, but n- not yeah, not uh, as self-aware. They're open to a variety of things. I don't know. They haven't made up their mind. The characters have not made up their minds about what kind of world they live in. You know, I'm not, it's funny because I'm so much not a, um, you know, I write very much from the characters and not, you know, so I don't think about, yeah, I want to talk about issues about, you know, what the world was like in 1963 and the civil rights movement, yada, yada. I don't go from there. I go really much from the characters. So to think about it in the other ways, I get kind of confused. Well, let's up. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know. This is going nowhere. <laughs> so, well, let's work back okay. to the characters then. Yeah. Because when you're writing a book like right. this, and right. that this is why the play part comes in, right. because plays are characters, voices. Right. Everything comes right. through right. the characters. Right. When you're creating a play, right. you have different actors performing. Right. So the actors themselves, right. like Mos Def and Jeffrey Wright, yeah. they're two different yeah. people for right. Top Dog, Underdog. Right. You know? right. Right. Here... Mm-hmm. You've got one page, and right. it's the same page straight through. Right. You must make the characters right. real. Or the reader must make the characters real. The reader must make them, but you've got to make exactly. them not only real, but you've got to make them distinguished yeah, from yeah. each other. Yeah, exactly. You've got to fill more in. With a play, there is um, space. There's a lot of physical space on the page for me. And the fact that I'm writing for live action, I'm trying to write and retain – a. F- write a full bo- full-blooded character and really flesh a character out but at the same time leave space so an actor can enter and inhabit that character with this i fill in the lines a little more so i the reader needs a little more because there is not an actor standing in front of her or him how do you develop different voices faulkner says um i listen to the voices and and i listen to faulkner <laughs> when he says that i really um i'm along those same lines I listen, you know, I can hear them in my head. You know, it takes a lot of work. You, it's not a passive listening. It's a very active uh, listening. Do you ever feel the need to speak the voices out loud? Oh, sure. No, I do. I read it. I have sometimes to make, to really get into the rhythm of it. I have to read out loud a lot. I read them, read a lot of the book out loud to my husband, Paul Osher, who's a great musician. So he was able to help me, you know, focus and hone in on each character. Well, if I was going to ask you to, say, compare the difference in creating the voice of, say, the character of Roosevelt or his wife, June, the difference between them, Uh, 
would that be something that you could actually talk about or, or mm-hmm. something that's coming from your subconscious? I could talk. I mean, I'll try. <laughs> I'll see what happens. Um, okay. The, the, this is the different. Um, it's, it's a voice, but I, it, it, it ends up, it, the voice comes out of a character. The voice comes to me, but then ultimately comes out of a character and is presented to the reader. June uh, has one leg. So she has a space around her that is different from Roosevelt's space. She is missing a leg that she lost in an accident when she was uh, 16. Roosevelt has a space in his mind because God, the vo- he used to listen to the voice of God. He used to be a preacher, and the voice of God left him. So he has a, an empty space in his mind or in his heart. And so the energy coming from him is very different from the energy coming from June. They're both missing something, but it's in a different place physically. They don't have children, so they're missing. They And they kind of don't know why they don't have children, so they're missing, you know, um, yeah. But when you're writing that, yeah. okay, how, how do you see ways, can you see ways in which the spaces come out on the printed page? Or is that, again, um, too subtle to really... It comes in the voice. No, no, no. It's like when Billy says... Um, when Billy's, uh, when Willa May actually talks about the hole. Right, Willie May's the dead character. Yes, yeah. Willa May's the dead character. And it's actually the hole is what I write from. So it's it's Roosevelt has a hole here or here maybe. Okay. June has a hole here in her leg or where her leg should be. There's a space there. So you write, Dill Smiles has a hole here in her heart. And you write from that, you know. The characters are missing things, you know. Is that just for here or in your in all of your work, do you think? Do you write from that hole? I think maybe in all of my work. I'm not sure. I'm looking <laughs> over here because it's over my left shoulder. Someone told me that, you know, I kept looking. I was doing a talk once and I was saying, you know, I can hear things that come over my left shoulder. And someone said, ah, Carlos Castaneda, you know, said the same thing. The, the stuff comes from the left, you know, and I'm like, oh, you know, oh. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, right. yeah. Susan Laurie Parks, one thing about getting Mother's Body that connects it to your other work and something you've said in an interview is that you write about African-Americans who are in states other than being oppressed or obsessed with whitey. Right. In other words, talking right. about how they're living their lives within themselves. This right. is conscious on your part. Yeah. Well, because it's it's like I woke up this morning. Was I thinking about Whitey? Well, you know, no. But then, you know, you t- <laughs> my husband's an Anglo-American, so you turn, oh, there, you know, but it's not like Whitey. You're thinking of my my dear, fantastic, fabulous husband. Um, but no, I think when uh, when African Americans wake up, you know, I don't think the fr- you know, yeah, Whitey. No, it's like, oh, my kid needs new shoes or. Oh, wow, what am I going to do about my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my woman or my this and my that, my car and working? I think that the, a lot of times I think that when we require racial conflict, you know, in novels by African Americans, we're just doing ourselves a disservice. I mean, all of ourselves, meaning the entire world culture. I think we're cutting, we're, 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 we have more to do than that, just obsess about it. The book itself is kind of a road trip, right. and what we yeah. see, uh, to give the listeners yeah, yeah. a chance at yeah. what's going on okay. here, is a 16-year-old girl named Billy has become pregnant. Her mother is dead, and mm-hmm. the grave that her mother has been buried in is about to be paved over. Meanwhile, 
she finds out, Billy finds out that her boyfriend, who mm-hmm. she's going to marry, is actually already married. She decides she wants to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. And the way to get the money is to mm-hmm. dig up mommy's body and get the jewels that have been mm-hmm. buried there. And so we have this road trip of all yeah. these people coming through. Right. What sets getting mothers apart from just telling a soap opera road right, trip right. is that each step of the way, mm-hmm. a different person is speaking. Unless you're looking very closely, mm-hmm. you can't necessarily tell who's mm-hmm. white or who's black. When it comes up, it comes up, you know, um, and it does come up in the book because it is a reality. For example, when Mr. Jackson, who owns a funeral home, He's very proud of his funeral home, and he'll say, Jackson's funeral is the best, you know, funeral home, white or black, in the county. You know, he he wants to make a point of that because it is something that he has, it is a business that he has created and that has thrived, regardless of the racial uh, problems that exist. During the road trip, when uh, they encounter a white policeman, there's some tension there. Oh, my God, you know, because they were speeding, and this white policeman has pulled them over, and there's a lot of tension there. It comes up when it comes up. But when it doesn't come up, no, it's not there. It's like we would not expect, for example, the Bundren family in Azalee dying to be obsessed with black people unless they met one on the road. primary character of Getting Mother's Body is Billy. You explain toward the end of the book that right. she's named after Billie Holiday, of course, right. but it's spelled differently. Right. And when asked, right. she says, there's a reason I won't go into it. Does Susan Laurie Parks know the reason? Why Billie's name is misspelled? Yeah. It's just misspelled. She's the main character of the book, and she is a tough, hard-to-like young woman who has had a lot of difficulty. Her mother died when she was fairly young. She never really knew her father. She's been living with her aunt and uncle. She quit school. She had a job at a beauty parlor. She quit. She is not a happy camper. And she grew up with her mother, and of course until her mother died, but her mother um, didn't like for Billy to call her mother. Her mother liked Billy to address her by her given name, Willa May. So Billy's got a lot of, just a lot of crap, you know, a lot of crap to work out. But it does bring up a question about uh, Susan Lurie Parks, which yeah. is that names are very important. For instance, in A. Yeah. Oh, we can't, <laughs> can't even say it we here. We can't say it on the radio. Oh, right? not even so, here. All right. No, that's all right. And, and in The Blood, both feature characters right. named Hester, which is a right. riff on Hester Prynne from right. Scarlet Letter. Right. There's got to be reasons why you, ma- you named them, or did the names just come up? Did Dill, for instance, just right. come out, out of nowhere, or Laz, or even Billy herself? Well, in the novel, they were named what they were named. And then, for example, toward the end of the novel, we find out why Laz is named Laz. It's a, for a reason. But did you yeah. know? Oh, no. There are things in the novel that I discovered along the way. That was what was really interesting about writing. I mean, it's been six years writing draft after draft after draft, and when I come into the final turn, the readable version of this novel I finished on the 6th of April, which was the day before we opened Top Dog Underdog in on Broadway. I'm compulsive, so I decided to finish it before we opened the play. But um, there were things I found out along the way. When Dill tells that she, uh, instead of burying Willa May with her jewels, early in the book, Dill says, instead of burying Willa May with her, the jewelry, I stole it. So we know, or we're told, that there is no jewelry in that coffin. I didn't know what was going to happen, 
but I was just following along with it. So there are things that, no, I didn't know, and I don't ask. The thing, it's like with Lincoln in the uh, the America play. When he first, like, came, quote-unquote, came to me as a character, I didn't ask him what he was doing. You know, I just wrote it down. I don't dig for meaning. I dig for story, which allows the story to remain intact and the meaning to remain very potent, I think. That's why you can write a play like Top Dog, Underdog in just a few days. That was a gift. Many, 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 many years of hard work as a playwright, and then one gets like a God-given gift. You know, sometimes the universe lines up and some God, you know, is there and you're writing in a very inspired state. And you're, I'm just writing, and I'm not sitting around thinking about, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? What's the political or the social implications of that that, 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 that I'm writing? Bop, 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 bop. No, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just listening and typing as fast as I can to get down this play. And so when I started to really get into the groove of this, because it's like finding the right story is a lot like, and I don't shoot dope or anything, but, you know, it's a lot like finding the right vein. You know, if you get blood taken, that's much better. You get blood <laughs> taken, you know, and you're in there and the nurse, you know, the kindly nurse is like poking around and she or he is hitting the wrong vein, the wrong vein, the wrong vein, how painful that is. And they're not drawing any blood. But when they hit the right vein, you know, it flows. And that's what writing draft after draft is like for me. I'm poking around and finally I hit the right vein and it just goes. And I'm not asking any questions at that point. I'm just like riding along, typing and then afterward comes the hard work of trying to put it together the and make it work. Yeah, yeah. The editing, editing, cut, 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 clip, 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 rewrite, 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 polish, hone, shape, all those things, you know. But not asking about meaning, asking about does it sound right, you know. You know, like is this the right sound? Is this the right note? Is this the right note? Is this the right note? Meaning is something that I'm, uh, I encourage other people to be interested in. Susan Laurie Parks, from what you're telling me, a lot of it is very instinctive, and yet you studied with James Baldwin, yes. and you teach writing. Yes, yes. So yeah. what can you teach? Uh, to listen to your gut. No, for three years, you know, we just graduated our first class down at uh, CalArts uh, at the Dramatic Writing Program, and I teach them to listen to their gut. I mean, I encourage them to, yeah, sure, take feedback from their peers and, and listen to their actors and whatnot, but the most important thing you have to listen to is your gut, your inner ear, your heart, your soul, your characters, what they're saying. And a lot of it is, you know, like inner ear training. We do three years of inner ear training. And, what, what is inner ear training? Well, it's, it's just the practice of listening to what you think the play should be. I mean, we read books like um, everything from Oedipus to we read all of Shakespeare. We read... Um, Zen and the art of archery, for example, you know, and we learn that writing is writing is not just about, you know, trying to get a career in Hollywood or on Broadway or whatnot. Writing is actually a way to train the mind to be open to the unconscious, you know, and we do it through writing because we are writers. You're listening to an interview with Susan Laurie Parks, whose novel is Getting Mother's Body, Pulitzer Prize winner for Top Dog, Underdog. It sounds as if the basic thrust of what you're teaching is mm-hmm. silencing that damned inner critic, mm-hmm. just getting that person there yes, to yes. just shut up and let you do what yes. you need to do. Well, like, wait for 
her, if your inner critic is a woman or a man, wait for her time because she is very important. She holds the sort of discrimination. And I'm, talk, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not talking about racial discrimination, of course. She holds a sort of discrimination, which you will need, not initially. Initially, you need to be, you know, running free and wild in the jungle of your own imagination. That's the writing part. And then comes the rewriting part. And you employ, you, you embrace the inner critic who holds a sort of discrimination, who allows you to cut what is not necessary for the story. And you really need her. So I don't silence her. I just sort of tell her, you know, be cool. You know, we're going to get to you in a minute. But right now we have to run free and wild in the jungle. I'm a terror in rehearsal of plays because I have told actors, like, hey, I come in, you know, I like, I don't know what it was when we were on Broadway with most. I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to cut that speech. And they're like, no, no, you can't cut that. I love it. I love it. I love it. I said, well, I don't know. I mean, do we really need it? And we had this long conversation because I wanted to cut. And George and Most and Jeffrey wanted to keep a, a speech. I can't even remember which one it was. They wanted to keep it in. So I'm a terror because I'll be the first one to say, eh, you know, let's cut. <laughs> but it's it's also true that as opposed to, I mean, in a book, right, right. you do all your editing, you right. give it to your editor, your right. editor runs through it, right. maybe your friends read right. it yeah, and yeah. make a few comments. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Play is very different because uh-huh. it relies on the audience and that first rehearsal period mm-hmm. is almost the rewrite there and it's a group right. effort, right? It depends on the play and the team and the writer. You know, when we did F&A at the Public Theater, it was a different experience. We had a cast uh, of 11, and uh, Michael Greif directed it. It was wonderful. Um, very different experience, though, from a cast of two with George Wolfe directing. You know, ver- a very different experience. The directors and everybody always makes wonderful suggestions. You know, I wouldn't call it necessarily a rewrite. Sometimes you add a page. Sometimes you cut a page. Um, I like to go in rehearsal with the script ready to go. I really do. I do a lot of work on the front end. I um, I know that a lot of wonderful writers really rewrite in rehearsal. Like, whole, you know, they have a whole new draft, and they listen to the audience, and if the audience doesn't laugh at a joke, they cut it and all this stuff. I'm not really that kind of um, writer. Um, certainly, if the team says this isn't working, we cut it. You know, that, no sweat. If the team says we need more, for example, George Wolf and Top Dog said, oh, I want to hear more about Lincoln's... Um, Lincoln's workplace. And so I said, how much? And he says, what are you talking about? So I said, you know, I started moving my finger in inches. You know, you want two inches, three inches, five inches, a page, a book, what? Because I have a whole bunch of stuff. And he thought I was crazy. He said, whatever, whatever, just go over there and do it. (laughs) So he said, no, go home and write it. I'm not going to go all the way home to write. So I sat in rehearsal, clicking on the computer. And he looked over and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing the scene. Don't you want it? And I printed it out and gave it to him. And it's one of the best speeches in the play. Um, because I had, you know, Lincoln, you know, I had him in my head. Well, wh- what about the uh, the way the actors themselves? I mean, in the case, now in the case uh-huh. of Top Dog Underdog, you right. have someone who's fairly, not that experienced, oh, at yeah. most deaf. And then you've got, on the other hand, you've yeah. got one of America's yeah. greatest actors, mm-hmm, Jeffrey mm-hmm, Wright. Mm-hmm. They work together brilliantly. Most 
who was making his Broadway debut. He'd done a lot of plays and TV and movies and stuff, but it was his Broadway debut, as it was mine. Um, and he, he was brilliant because he totally understood that Jeffrey was a very accomplished guy and had a lot to teach him and a, had a lot to teach all of us. By the end of the run, I think that they realized they had a lot to teach each other because most has, he's a great actor and he also has great uh, instincts and timing and stuff, which we benefited from. From the beginning, even when Don Cheadle was doing it with Jeffrey at the Public Theater, and even when before that, the very first reading of it with Jeffrey Wright playing Booth and Ruben Santiago Hudson playing Lincoln, which I directed uh, at the Public Theater, the reading, um, the guy said, this is, you know, this sounds like two guys, so we're cool. You know, it's, it's, it sounds quote-unquote authentic, and we're cool with it. And So there wasn't a lot of like, oh, you know, men would never say, there wasn't a lot of that. They were into it. You've worked with, obviously, uh, Wolf is one of the great directors. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> what, what happens when him. Susan Laurie Parks walks in with a play that she really loves and she sits down with the director and the director has no idea what to do here? What do you do as the playwright starting out? Has right. that ever happened? I don't work with them, actually. I don't work with them. I, I don't think it's it's fair to them or me to work with a director who doesn't get it. You know what I mean? It's okay. I mean, it, it, it happens. It happened in the early years. You know, I just don't, I decide, well, maybe I like this person. I respect this person's work a hell of a lot, but I'm not going to work with them because we're obviously on two different trains, you know, it's not, it's just not worth it. You're doing something now which is a bit different, which is writing screenplays, right. but in addition, right. adapting other people's work. Right. How does, how does that play in? Uh, do you, do you feel confined or do you feel free? You're as free as you want to be. And I think I'm, I feel like I'm the luckiest writer in the whole USA to be given the opportunity to adapt not only, not just Toni Morrison, who's a great, great, great writer and um, has written a great novel called Paradise. But then I, a couple of months, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, they wanted me to do Their Eyes Are Watching God, which is, you know, that great, fantastic, perfect novel by Zora Neale Hurston. And no, I feel very free. I feel like, and again, then this is when you again turn to the, the, uh, the woman uh, who has the sword, you know, and you say um, you need her because she uses the sword. It's a, do- it's a sword that you use. One, you have to protect the, the beautiful original work because you don't want it to be simplified or reduced to something trite and ridiculous. You definitely don't want that to happen. But at the same time, you use that sword, so the sword protects the work from becoming silly. And at the same time, you use the sword to eviscerate. You cut, you have to be ruthless and cut what does not work uh, on screen. Susan Lurie Parks, um, you came in through public theater, through avant-garde theater, Theater today, particularly Broadway theater, mm-hmm. is very corporate-oriented. How do you view that? Do you think that in light of the fact that, say, you're working with Disney on, uh, right, on right. hoops, right. how do you maintain that sense of self so that you don't become corrupted by that larger system? Right. Well, I go to the question, the sense of self. So you take that phrase. Who am I? That is the answer. Who am I? There are a lot of people who, when I, because I used to do plays in garages for, you know, for no money and make no money and all that. There were a lot of people who, when I began to do plays at the public theater, they said, oh, you know, sell out, sell out. Now she's doing plays at the public theater. Okay. 
Then there were more people who said when I went to Broadway, oh, now she's really selling out because she's going on Broadway. But I think, I know from experience that there are many ways to be transgressive. There are many ways to, you know, you can infiltrate and educate. So who am I? If I had said I am a playwright who does plays off, off, off Broadway, and that is who I am, and that is who I'm always going to be, then I'd be doing plays for an invited audience of 15, you know, off, off, off Broadway. That's one way to be. But I've allowed myself to accept what comes and work within a variety of systems. I enjoy working with Disney and writing a really cool story about the Harlem Globetrotters, a really cool play. I enjoy that. They're not evil. They're no more evil than anybody else. I mean, we're all equally evil as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I'm, I'm in there working. Uh, I'm with Oprah and her company working. I'm, it's all good. I mean, it's really worked with Spike Lee. What? I can, you know, <laughs> hey, uh, it's all good. <laughs> I, I, wasn't working. <laughs> I wasn't working with Spike he's Lee. He's great. He's crazy, man. He's crazy. But he was very generous to me and very generous to, I mean, I wrote the screenplay for him and he uh, made it. I had just done one independent sh- uh, short film before that, so I didn't have this big track record or anything. And um, he made Girl Six, and I hung out on the set, and he let me like sit in his chair and stuff. And you know, <laughs> it was great. He was very generous to me. And Each of these different avenues that you that you take uh, writing uh, a play, a screenplay, libretto, a mm-hmm. novel. Uh, have you written, written short stories too? I have. You know, I started off when I was studying with James Baldwin. That's what I was writing, short stories that took place in West Texas. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and that I would, when I would read them to the class, you know, almost perform them. And I'd like to get back to, I mean, I, who, who knows? I just sort of take what comes. What do you like best? Which one? Which one, like, gets you the most when you feel that the you're going... The most press? No. No, no. <laughs> I mean, when you when you're putting something together, <laughs> mm, well, no. when I'm putting something, what gives me the most uh, thrill? Yeah. Oh, different. You know, it's a different kind of thrill. Like the novel is the thrill. Like the the, like the novel is a big bonfire that burns, and it's it's slow. Yeah, I mean, it's all thrilling. It's all writing. It's you, know, you can write a song that takes three minutes, and you write the music, and you practice on the guitar, and it's fun. You know. You know, just writing, working hard, and getting in the groove, and finding the story, and then, through the grace of God, finishing it. It's good no matter what you're writing. The uh, songs that Willa May has in right. uh, Getting Mother's Body, do they have music attached they to them? They do, they do. And when I read from the book, at these book readings and signings, I play the songs. Cause I brought my guitar, and I, um, I play the songs. On the audio CD, uh, my husband, uh, Paul Osher, who's a blues musician, plays the music for the songs, and I sing. So we, we break from the reading, and we just go off into a little musical thing. Yeah. There's, there's an audio CD on this? There is. There is. I mean, not in it. No, not in it. There's, there's like, it's separate, like a separate product um, <laughs> made by Random House Audio. When writing these characters, getting back for a second to mm-hmm. get it, getting Mother's Body, because um, I could ask you about your all your plays, yeah. too, uh-huh. um, and maybe you can just come up with some stuff here. Oh, okay. Which character, when you started writing them, which character did you have the most fun writing, and which character did you identify with most, do you think? Huh. Laz, probably. See, there's always... Uh, Donald Hall has this book called Life Work, and he talks about... Um, emotional hotspots 
I'm paraphrasing badly. Sorry, Donald Hall. But he talks about uh, hot spots. And um, so the resurrectionist in my plays, or the, the diggers, actually, that's a good word to use. Digger, joke on, can we say nigger? I don't know. Anyway, edit it out. <laughs> um, inner, uh, whatever, in N-I-G-G-E-R, D-I-G-G-E-R. Um, it's a joke in my mind that I've been telling myself this joke for years. In uh, the America play, he was a digger and a good digger. Yeah, he was a grave digger in uh, Venus, the Negro Resurrectionist. So I identify with the digger because I am the digger. As a writer, I'm the digger, resurrecting, unearthing, exhuming this text, remembering this event, putting the body back together. So I identify with the digger, and Laz is the digger in the book. So I, he is, I'm most in tune with him. Um, and the other characters. Billy was the hardest because she's so damn angry. She's so angry. So to get, uh, uh, you know, to get her to come forward was rough. You know, Dill was very, you know, Dill was like a snake. Not as not an evil, not an evil sense. Like a snake, you know, who would just stay coiled and watching from the corner. But when she turned over her cards, she turned them over and she came along nicely. Willa May loved to talk. <laughs> um, and Roosevelt, I, I love. I have a lot of respect for Uncle Roosevelt and not June. It sounds like um, generally um, you kind of look at writing as rather than just creation, it's really more discovery. You're digging in the dirt. You don't know what you're going to find. I used to collect rocks as a kid, you know, like fossils and stuff. Do you ever think about writing uh, a genre piece, something like a detective story? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I really do. I, I, I think that would be fun. I don't know. I mean, I know I'm. I'd like to write another novel. Da, 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 da. Another play. I got a play in my head that keeps going. Blah blah. Write me. Write me. I have a thing I'm doing in, um, in the fall in November for the opening of Cal Arts, a 24-hour play that I'm doing for them. Um, so that's you know another thing I'm working on right now. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by it all? Wow, all the time, all the time. How about when you won the Pulitzer? It was like, you know, poster girl, da da represent. Oh. <laughs> were, you, um, were you shocked? I was still sort of awake from the opening because we opened the play the day before. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We opened the play the night before. We opened the play on. So I finished the draft of Getting Mother's Body on the 6th because I had to finish, finish it before we opened the play. We opened the play on Broadway, not downtown at the Public Theater, but on Broadway on April the 7th. In the evening, of course, then we had the, the opening night party, and we were all up and dancing around, you know, and all night. And then the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer, sorry, the Pulitzer, 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 was announced on the 8th. So it was just this continuous, you know, wave of like, wow. You know, I thought, you know, there's so many great uh, African-American women playwrights. And, gee, you know, it would have been nice if one of them had won before me, but didn't have any control over that. Susan Laurie Parks, yes. now you've written Getting Mother's Body. You've yes. got these amazing characters, Billy, Laz, Homer, Roosevelt. <laughs> Do you ever plan on bringing them back in either a book, a short story, or well, a play? They might well come back because um, the, the second novel is, um, I think it's set in Blackwell County. I don't think it's set in Lincoln, Texas. I think it's set in Blackwell County where the other beads stay at. They might come back because I love them, and they nag at me. You know, like Lincoln came back in a different form, of course, but he came back, So and Booth came back, so you never know. 